KZSU FM Stanford. Welcome to another edition of Hearsay Culture. My name is Dave Levine. I'm an associate professor at Elon University School of Law, an affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School, and a visiting research collaborator at Princeton Center for Information Technology Policy. Uh, today, I'm very excited to have on one of the leading intellectual property law scholars uh, of the last 25, 30 years, uh, Professor Pamela Samuelson of Berkeley Law School as well as Berkeley's School of Information. Uh, Pam's work is widely known by anyone who focuses in uh, copyright and intellectual property law more broadly, uh, cyber law, information policy. Uh, and so I will give an introduction uh, to the extent that listeners aren't familiar with Pam's work, but uh, certainly intellectual intellectual property and technology law scholars know Pam and her work quite well. Uh, today, I'm going to chat with Pam at length about the organization that she and several others founded a few years ago called the Authors Alliance. Uh, the Authors Alliance, as its webpage at authorsalliance.org points out, uh, is designed to empower authors in the digital age by focusing, and we'll talk to Pam in more detail about this, on alternatives to ownership, alternatives to traditional copyright, and broader ways to think about how information, uh, particularly information provided and written and created by authors, can be distributed given modern technologies, given the law, and given the broader concerns that exist with regard to how content is shared generally. The Authors Alliance is not to be confused with the Authors Guild, and we're going to talk about that as well. And so we're going to dive deep not only into Pam's perspectives on a variety of copyright and intellectual property and technology law issues of the day, but more specifically into the role of the Authors Alliance, the goals of the Authors Alliance, and perhaps some of the challenges associated with attempting to influence public policy uh, in the United States in 2016. Uh, by way of, again, background, although many of my listeners will be familiar with it, uh, Pam has written and spoken extensively about the challenges that information technologies pose in a variety of legal contexts. Uh, she's been affiliated with not only Berkeley Law School, uh, but also the School of Information since 1996. She is the director of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, whose, whose journal, uh, Law Journal, is widely known. Uh, she serves on the board of directors of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the Electronic, uh, Electronic Privacy Information Center. Uh, she's also on the advisory boards of Public Knowledge um, and other organizations. She advises the Samuelson Law, Technology, and Public Policy Clinic, uh, which has done incredible work uh, on the advocacy and litigation side involving these issues. She is at the, uh, the head of a large organization at Berkeley that has wonderful uh, and diverse scholars in a range of areas. One of my early guests, for example, by way of one example, uh, was Chris Hufnagel, uh, and Chris has, has since he was on the show, uh, he was doing and continues to do wonderful work in the area of privacy, and particularly now, I think what's going on in the EU with regard to digital privacy rights. But suffice to say that the Berkeley Center that Pam uh, has founded is arguably, you know, certainly one of the leading uh, centers in the law and technology space. Um, I and many others are fans of her work, uh, and I'm very excited to have her joining me today on the show. She is joining us from uh, her office in Berkeley. We are recording on April 22nd, 2016, for airing next Friday. Uh, Pam, thank you so much for joining me on the show and taking the time to talk to my listeners. 
Thank you so much for inviting me and giving me a chance to talk with you about uh, Authors Alliance and other kinds of issues uh, of the day. Terrific. Well, let's start off here. Like I said, Pam, I think I think our, our, probably most of my listeners are familiar uh, with you, but to the extent, and I always say this, to the extent that someone is driving in the Bay Area, um, which again is kind of a silly thing to even say in your context, and isn't familiar with you and your background, perhaps you know, talk a bit more about your background and before we get to the Authors Alliance, your particular interest in copyright? So I've been teaching um, for more than 30 years now um, in the intellectual property field, um, and I was very lucky to be able to uh, enter the field at a time when there weren't that many people uh, doing work in this area, and I got to know some computer scientists at Carnegie Mellon University uh, who helped me really understand uh, uh, information technology, in particular computer software uh, and networks and so forth. And so uh, starting about um, 1994, um, I got very involved in the um, reform of copyright law um, efforts that uh, the Clinton administration uh, had uh, undertaken um, uh, publishing first a green paper on uh, intellectual property and the national infra information infrastructure uh, and then um, a, a, a white paper after that uh, and uh, I wrote uh, several articles uh, really criticizing uh, that report as uh, being well, misstating the law in some respects uh, but also trying to change the law in ways that would not be uh, uh, really as balanced as the law has been traditionally. So I wrote a paper for Wired magazine called uh, The Copyright Grab, um, and my, my aim there was really uh, to try to reach a wider audience. I also uh, do a regular column for uh, Communications of the ACM, which is a computing professionals journal, uh, 100,000 members worldwide, and I was trying to sort of make the technology community aware of the efforts to essentially stretch copyright law uh, and uh, expand it dramatically, and uh, partly as a result of my helping to mobilize uh, people in the technology community to kind of understand what was at stake with these initiatives, uh, we ended up with not quite as bad a law um, uh, with the DMCA and not quite as bad a, um, a treaty uh, in 1996 as we might otherwise have done. So. Um, I, since 1994, I've just really felt like, well, I have a role um, in helping to translate uh, the complexities of copyright and the complexities of uh, papers uh, such as the, uh, the green and white paper of the Clinton administration to a wider audience. And since uh, what's going to happen with those initiatives is going to affect everybody. Um, I think it's important for everybody to feel like they have a voice in the um, in the process. So, so that's really a kind of long time activism I've had um, uh, on copyright reform type issues. Uh, and the you know the most recent kind of effort that I've I've engaged in uh, really has been through the Authors Alliance. So two years ago. We launched uh, the Authors Alliance at the Internet Archive uh, with a copyright reform agenda that we thought would actually be beneficial uh, for authors. 
So let, let I, I you've said a lot there already, Pam, and I want to dive into some of this, uh, given your experience, some of this history dealing with policymaking around IP in a moment. But I want to, I do want to be clear for the listeners. So you know, give us your description of what the Authors Alliance is, uh, the impetus for it, and its 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 broad goals. So um, I would say the uh, the main thing that the Authors Alliance wants to do is make authors feel empowered and empowered both in the sense that they kind of understand the incredible benefits that they can have by virtue of their creations and the copyright laws that uh, provide them with protection for their creations. Uh, but uh, most authors actually don't know very much about copyright and sometimes they, they think they don't want to know very much. But in fact, uh, it's really important to kind of understand uh, what rights you have and also to be careful about how you manage those rights uh, so that you are able to uh, to uh, achieve your dissemination uh, objectives. So um, uh, many of the resources that are on uh, the Authors Alliance website at this point are things that we think uh, will uh, help authors really understand copyright law and also understand contract law uh, better and be more careful about the way that they um, license or uh, assign uh, their rights to uh, to third parties. Uh, and it's important uh, also for there to be a voice um, in the public policy arena. So I sometimes say that uh, that Authors Alliance has a kind of inward-facing function, which is to uh, to provide resources to help authors essentially understand and manage their rights better, uh, and an outward-facing uh, function, uh, which is to be a voice uh, for the silent majority of authors uh, whose primary motivation in creating works of authorship um, is to share the knowledge that they've uh, learned uh, with uh, a wider public. Uh, and so um, uh, the Authors Guild uh, represents the interests of certain uh, independent authors, uh, but I think they don't speak for all authors. And I, I came to realize over time that it would really be beneficial for um, there to be an organization uh, like Authors Alliance uh, that could uh, speak out uh, for uh, what I really regard as a silent majority of authors. So let me let me just deal with the, uh, and I think it's an important issue for clarity, this uh, semantic uh, point that uh, we have, although it's an important one. Uh, the, the Authors Guild uh, has a somewhat different focus, and we're going to talk about the Authors Guild shortly when we talk about the uh, Google uh, book search uh, settlement. Um, but, but perhaps you could, you could frame the Authors Alliance not only independently but in this context. To the extent, you've alluded to it already, to the extent that the Authors Alliance is filling a void that you saw as absent in the public policy arena, what is it? And then secondly, are you or have you been concerned about uh, confusion between the two names? Well, there are lots of authors' uh, organizations. Uh, there is, there's a science fiction uh, writers association. There's also a writers guild. Um, uh, the reason that we called um, uh, our organization Authors Alliance is because we were anticipating that there were many 
issues on which we could ally with other organizations. Um, so um, we've had some alliances uh, on copyright reform issues uh, with uh, other organizations. Uh, we're working with Creative Commons on a project about uh, terminating transfers. There's this bizarre part of U.S. copyright law that allows authors to uh, to essentially terminate uh, uh, licenses or assignments of copyright, uh, and we uh, want to work with uh, um, Creative Commons in trying to help authors uh, who are eligible for terminations to uh, to be able to accomplish that. Um, so uh, there are issues on which um, uh, the Authors Guild and the Authors Alliance uh, can work together. I recently had lunch with uh, with Mary Rassenberger, who's the uh, relatively recent uh, new head of the Authors Guild, uh, and we sort of ag agreed to disagree on some issues, um, uh, such as the Google Books litigation, but um, in terms of uh, fair contracting rules and um, the importance of attribution and integrity of uh, uh, authors' uh, works, uh, I think uh, the Authors Guild uh, and the Authors Alliance can, uh, can work together. So. Um, uh, there is actually, um, uh, you know, a certain set of issues that the Authors Guild uh, is particularly concerned about, which is that um, that it's harder now uh, than in the past for um, uh, for independent authors, um, uh, professional writers, to uh, get uh, to make a living from their writing. Uh, and um, that's actually something which, of course, they are entitled to do. But they are—they uh, represent a relatively small number of of, of authors, and uh, they have some restrictive membership um, uh, rules that uh, means that you know the rest of us authors uh, who wouldn't necessarily qualify uh, to become members of the guild, we're authors too, and our voices are. Uh, I think at least as important as uh, as other authors' voices are. So uh, let us all uh, say what we have to say and hope that the law can evolve in a proper way as to all authors. We're chatting with Professor Pam Samuelson of Berkeley Law School and Berkeley School of Information on KZSUFM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. So, Pam, you you know, I I want to take a step back, and you alluded to it already, which is some of the some of the uh, difficult history of IP and specifically copyright lawmaking at the federal level. But you just alluded to to this to this meeting you had, which I think is is a somewhat of a counter narrative to how we view policy making today. I, I think there's a there's a popular conception that, uh, in many ways, we are so polarized um, that there are no issues that uh, on which on which divergent parties uh, can work. And it, it and, the, and the reason I bring this up is because you've alluded to this meeting and and uh, Dennis Crouch, uh, who has written uh, on Patent Leo about the Defend Trade Secrets Act, um, pointed out uh, as the Defend Trade Secrets Act moves forward in Congress that he marveled, um, he wrote this recently, he marveled at how when it comes to IP policy, uh, 
partisanship goes out the window. Uh, the DTSA, which I am opposed to, and I'm not going to hijack this interview to talk about it, uh, but the DTSA passed uh, the Senate 87 to nothing. It was just marked up uh, a few days ago in the House uh, and seems to be moving forward. But putting aside the DTSA, which is not the focus of my question, what, what do you make of that critique? In other words, is it fair to say that IP policy, as you look back on, on the 25, 30 years that you've been looking at and working in this area, is IP policy from a policy-making perspective somehow unique or different, such that meetings like you described with, with an entity that, that many would perceive as being very much different from yours, more typical in the IP space? Uh, again, there's a lot to say there, but I'm curious to get your reaction to that issue or that, or that observation. So I think that partisanship uh, uh, issues um, have uh, not been uh, as evident um, in the in the copyright space. Uh, I think that uh, when it comes to uh, copyright in particular, Democrats have been uh, very often more receptive to uh, the uh, interests of the entertainment industry, but I think the rise of the technology industry uh, has made um, the older alignments of Democrats and uh, and the entertainment industry a little more complicated because a lot of Democrats want the technology industry to uh, to thrive as well. Um, so um, I think partisanship is not really the explanation anymore for the uh, the deep divides, but. You know, there's a lot at stake in these uh, in these intellectual property fields. Uh, so uh, when there's a lot of things at stake, uh, people sometimes get pretty excited about it. I've actually made uh, a real effort, um, especially in the last decade or so, uh, to reach out across um, uh, lines and and form good relations with um, with people in the entertainment sector insofar as I can. So. The Copyright Principles Project that I organized um, in 2007 uh, included uh, representatives from IBM uh, and um, uh, and Microsoft, uh, as well as from Time Warner and Disney, and um, we met three times a year uh, over uh, the course of three years and produced a report. Um, that identified some things about copyright law that were working pretty well, um, some things that were in need of reform, and we put together um, suggestions for 25 uh, specific types of issues uh, on which reform uh, might be a good idea. Uh, and uh, when uh, Representative Goodlatte started his hearings uh, about the uh, copyright reform uh, issues that he was uh, interested in. Um, five of the uh, five of the twenty of the copyright principles project members uh, were um, asked to uh, to testify before uh, the committee, and uh, we did. And he thought it was actually a good thing that uh, that we we had been able to come together and have civil conversations reach consensus on a large number of issues uh, and uh, present those in a, in a really constructive way. So um, I believe that, um, that it, uh, as much as possible we should be trying to uh, forge um, alliances and uh, find common ground where we can. 
since we're in the since we're in this policy making uh, focus, before I turn to other focuses of uh, the Authors Alliance and and chat with you about the recent uh, Authors Guild uh, v. Google holding, um, it, one of the criticisms that is leveled at Congress regularly um, is that Congress lacks the expertise at this point in 2016 as compared to say 20 years ago to get deep into the weeds of policy making and and studying data and empirical evidence and the like and that more so there is a lack of interest uh, within Congress to do that kind of work. What's your reaction to that observation? Well, Congress has a lot of things on its plate and it has uh, some of its own um, problems to contend with, um, but um, I think that uh, you know there always has to be some leadership uh, in Congress that uh, that takes copyright seriously. And Representative Goodlatte right now is, uh, I think, uh, has been the the kind of the lead on um, getting that conversation rolling. I think the series of uh, of hearings that he's had on specific copyright reform issues has been really constructive and he's invited people with different points of view so that it's not just uh, about you know the what the entertainment industry wants um, and uh, I think that has been uh, important I think the copyright office itself has uh, reached out uh, through notice of inquiry um, uh, providing opportunities for members of the public including groups like Authors Alliance to uh, to weigh in on policy reform measures that the office thinks uh, are important uh, and the US Patent and Trademark Office uh, has issued a white paper recently uh, calling for reform of statutory damages. Uh, that's one of the issues that uh, Authors Alliance has also highlighted. That was another one of the recommendations of the Copyright Principles Project. Uh, and so um, uh, I'm actually less skeptical uh, about the pos possibility of some good um, uh, lawmaking um, in this area. I think there are a lot of serious people who want to do a good job and it's my job uh, partly to try to help that along in a constructive way. So Pam, let, let me ask you one last question on this front um, by way of uh, by way of granularity. Um, to the extent that, and this is perhaps a question you can draw in your experience broadly, you know, to the extent that there are more controversial areas within IP law, and I'm thinking about you know things like the enforcement questions that have come up repeatedly. I'm thinking, you know, like for example, the Stop Online Piracy Act, right, and SOPA, where you've got um, powerful divergent voices. In the case of SOPA, obviously, eventually it, it became a battle between entities like Google versus the traditional entertainment industry, as opposed to issues where there is broader consensus. Do you find that there is a willingness across the board to grapple with not just the, and I, I say it's all relative, the relatively easier questions or at least questions where there's an agreement that there's a problem versus the kinds of issues where there may or may not be agreement on the problem, but more specifically, there's not agreement on the solutions. 
Is there a difference in your experience, and I'm thinking about the drafting of the DMCA um, and other experiences that you've had, right? Is there a difference in how Congress deals with that both then and perhaps now? Well, I think that uh, the SOPA battle uh, was um, an important one, uh, partly because the uh, the technology community uh, and uh, users of uh, technology uh, let members of Congress know that um, we're watching and we think this is a bad idea. Um, and I think that part of the reason why um, policymaking uh, these days is uh, more balanced uh, is because uh, representatives uh, in Congress don't want to have 8 million people getting angry at them, uh, as happened uh, with the SOPA battle. So um, kind of recognizing that the public does occasionally get uh, energized about copyright issues, uh, you know, is a sobering thing. Um, and it's helped to uh, balance out uh, the, uh, the policy arena to some degree. But I think you're right. There are certain issues on which the controversies are so intense that it's really um, not easy to find ways to uh, to work together. So I think the the biggest example right now is the um, the notice of inquiry that the Copyright Office uh, has out about the uh, the DMCA safe harbors for internet service uh, providers and um, information locating tools uh, such as search engines. Uh, so I, I think I heard that 90,000 comments were submitted uh, to the Copyright Office in response to that notice of inquiry. Mm -hmm. And it'll take the office a little while, I would guess, to go through all of them. But um, the entertainment industry submissions, particularly from the recording industry, um, want uh, to reopen the the safe harbors and uh, uh, make them uh, much uh, much much less friendly to ISPs um, uh, on the theory that you know at the time that the DMCA was negotiated um, we were in a very different environment and um, they argue that the rules got to get stronger because the internet um, has proven to be. Um, such uh, an amazing tool for people to exchange uh, copyrighted materials uh, in a way that the, that uh, the recording industry in particular objects to. So, um, you know, I think that members of Congress are probably not very eager to reopen uh, that battle uh, because uh, that that's that like the SOPA battle um, is really about. Um, uh, clamping down on some I internet freedoms that uh, that people have co come to be uh, caring about. So um, it'll be interesting to see whether the uh, Copyright Office, in response to all of these submissions, decides to uh, make recommendations for change, or whether they're, they're going to say, you know, the this is working out pretty well for at least most entities and uh, maybe it's not a good idea to reopen it. So um, I think we have to stay tuned to see what uh, what the office uh, recommends, but I think they're going to take the lead uh, on whatever um, reform measures uh, that come before Congress.
We're chatting with uh, Professor Pam Samuelson of Berkeley Law on KZSUFM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. For those of you that listen to the show regularly, you know that KZSU is a nonprofit, non-commercial radio station at Stanford University that requires donations from listeners like you to continue its diverse programming. You have a couple of ways to make a donation at KZSU. You can email our underwriting department at underwriting at kzsu.stanford.edu or go to our webpage and click on Donate to KZSU. Uh, regardless, I hope that you continue to listen to the station. So, so. Pam, let me let's turn to uh, because it's quite timely. The and I know you've written about it within the last few days. Um, the outcome of the Google book search uh, litigation brought by the Authors Guild. Um, a, a few years ago, I had James Grimmelman on, who where we spent the entire show talking about it. Uh, but for those that aren't familiar with the dispute, perhaps first you could kind of summarize the dispute as you see it uh, for my listeners. So the Authors Guild brought a lawsuit in uh, September of 2005 uh, against Google for having uh, scanned um, um, millions of books from research library collections. Uh, the lawsuit uh, claimed uh, not only that the Guild could sue, but also three members of the Authors Guild um, uh, objected to the scanning of the books uh, from those research library collections and claimed that they were representative of all authors who, uh, whose books were being scanned at the University of Michigan, the University of California, and many other uh, partner libraries uh, for the Google Book Project. Uh, and the claim was just the scanning of the books uh, by itself was copyright infringement, but so was serving up uh, three small snippets from uh, each uh, of the books that was responsive to search queries that users of the Google search engine might uh, might want to be looking for. So uh, about six months into that lawsuit, uh, the parties entered into a long conversation about a proposed settlement of the lawsuit and in October um, of 2008 uh, there was a, a proposed settlement announced uh, for the next couple of years, uh, there was a fight over whether or not that um, that settlement, which would have allowed Google to commercialize uh, the books uh, that um, uh, it had scanned uh, that were out of print and whose authors hadn't opted out, uh, and uh, the 63% of the money from Google's commercializations uh, would have gone to a, a new collecting society uh, and then the monies would be paid out to authors depending on how their books were sold or used. Uh, that uh, the court eventually decided that the uh, that the settlement was not um, uh, fair to uh, the class and was not uh, actually something that the court could approve. Um, one of the reasons that the court gave for uh, rejecting the settlement was actually that the Authors Guild had not adequately represented the interests of academic authors, um, uh, and that was based on submissions that I had made uh, to the court during that. Once the settlement was rejected, uh, then the case went back into litigation, and uh, eventually the district court and then the Second Circuit Court of Appeals decided that the scanning of the books and uh, serving snippets was fair use and not infringement. Uh, the Second Circuit's opinion basically says that 
what those snippets do is allow uh, searchers, users, uh, to uh, get information about the books, but they are such small uh, scale snippets that uh, it can't serve as a substitute for the book. Uh, and one thing that the court didn't focus on, but I think is relevant, is that uh, for in copyright books that um, for which snippets are available, uh, Google provides a link to sites where you can buy or borrow the book. Uh, so it's an effort to sort of promote information that will help authors um, uh, find readers and uh, that's actually um, uh, what I think is beneficial uh, for readers uh, as well as for um, uh, authors uh, about the uh, the outcome of the case so uh, so that's the uh, the Supreme Court, uh, the Authors Guild asked the Supreme Court to review uh, the Second Circuit's decision and the Supreme Court uh, just recently decided not to hear it. So the case is over uh, and um, uh, the Google Books um, uh, will remain available to, uh, to users uh, and if authors don't like their books um, having snippets, they can ask Google to take it out of uh, to take that book out of the the search are you surprised that the supreme court didn't take up this case no i wasn't surprised at all the judge laval uh is one of the best known uh copyright judges uh in the country and uh it was his uh law review article that the the supreme court in the last fair use case that it took um, uh, cited repeatedly. Uh, so when Judge Laval writes uh, an opinion uh, carefully reasoned uh, to say that uh, this was fair use, um, I think the Supreme Court was likely to defer to it and um, the Authors Guild tried to uh, try to say that it was uh, uh, it was not um, uh, a, str a strong or sound opinion and uh, I think that um, I think they're wrong about that, but um, uh, but it wasn't so far out of whack with what um, uh, the law kind of across the circuits uh, has uh, had. So um, there have been other search engine cases. Uh, I think Google was saying that you know these snippets are like the thumbnails that search engines uh, have also been held to make fair use of. Um, uh, when uh, photographers uh, uh, or um, owners of copyrights and photographs have objected to it, those were found to be fair use because they enable people to find information that they're interested in uh, and um, that's actually something that um, we all care about. So we're chatting with uh, Pam Samuelson of Berkeley Law and KZSU FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. Um, Pam, let me let me turn to a couple of other of the primary focuses of the Authors Alliance to kind of delve into them a bit. Um, one of the areas that you uh, focus on uh, that the organization focuses on is reputation and integrity. And and again, I, I want I'm trying to frame these questions around what I think are colloquial or generalized understandings of how copyright law, uh, to the extent they exist. Uh, play in here, and and I think I think a lot of people would say that copyright 
protects the reputation and integrity of authors by allowing authors to completely control how their works of authorship are used. And so therefore, from a uh, personhood stand standpoint, uh, a theoretical standpoint with regard to copyright, the alteration or changing of a work of authorship is in uh, some fashion uh, an attack or a change in the nature of the person who's putting themselves out there in their work of authorship. Uh, the Authors Alliance, as you've already pointed out, has a has different perspectives on many issues, including uh, the fair use aspects, among others, uh, that are relevant to the uh, Google Book Search uh, litigation. What is the Authors Alliance role and position with regard to authorial reputation and integrity, as you call it, and how does it protect those interests? So uh, one of the reform agenda items that uh, that was part of the package um, uh, at the launch of Authors Alliance uh, was um, a commitment to uh, attribution and integrity as uh, interests that authors have that the law should respect. Um, at the moment, only um, <clears throat> creators of works of visual art which is fairly narrowly defined, um, have the legal right to attribution uh, and integrity um, of their works being respected uh, by the law. And Authors Alliance thinks that all authors are entitled to um, uh, be attributed uh, as authors and to be able to object to, um, to mutilations of their work um, that uh, would be harmful to their uh, to their reputation. So, you know, I'm an academic. I really care about the integrity of my work. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a story. I, I once had an experience of finding that somebody had edited one of my articles and had added some of their own commentary and chopped it up in a way that basically said, not what I would have said, but what they wanted to say. Mm. And I have to say, I basically said to that person, I'm sorry, I, I appreciate that you like this part of my work, but, um, but you change it in a way that does not represent what I actually think uh, my work says. And uh, so I want you to take that down. And the person actually did so, and I was, I was pleased uh, at that outcome, uh, but I think that it's so important uh, that authors um, uh, have the ability to control uh, derivative works of their um, of their creations. Um, and so, I'm a, actually a strong believer in the in the derivative work right, at least as uh, I understand it. Um, and uh, that is the principal way at the moment that authors can control. Uh, the integrity of their works, but um, uh, the Authors Alliance uh, supports legislation that would grant um, attribution and integrity rights more generally uh, to uh, authors, and this is actually an issue on which uh, I think the Authors Guild and the Authors Alliance can actually work together. 
Do you? And I know this is this, this question I'm going to ask. Probably take the rest of the show, and we have about 15 or so minutes left. Um, but I'm not suggesting you take 15 minutes. But so so, and and I think it's important to draw this distinction. So, you know, if we think about derivative works as as works that uh, you know build upon uh, the existing work work of authorship. So you know, making a bobblehead doll out of out of a you know a character from a from a movie, um, or you know, creating you know the second book in a series versus the kind of transformative uses that we have in fair use. Is that simply where you would draw the line? I mean, this is, of course, relevant also to the Google Book search outcome. But if you're thinking as a, for, for the purposes of an author thinking through what rights they have and don't, where do you draw the line between the derivative work, which would be controlled by the author, and the kinds of fair uses that where the author, the original work of the, uh, the original author loses control? So <clears throat> I am a strong believer in transformative uh, uses of uh, copyrighted materials as uh, as fair uses. I don't think all transformations of uh, existing works um, uh, are necessarily fair uses. Uh, in fact, many of them are not. Um, uh, I think that uh, the kind of uh, parodies and critical commentaries and uh, non-commercial mashups and uh, uh, remixes uh, that are widely found on um, on the internet um, are creative reuses that are to be encouraged. So, um, uh, but I look to the language of the uh, the copyright law to say what kinds of things was Congress really contemplating as things that authors should be able to control. So the translation of uh, my work uh, from one language to another, that's something that I think uh, authors generally want to be able to uh, control, and uh, especially insofar as those translations will be commercially distributed um, in uh, the marketplace. Uh, that's something that uh, I, uh, I strongly support. Um, the idea that uh, if someone wants to make a motion picture version of a short story that they should ask permission for that also makes uh, a lot of sense to me uh, and so I consider the the specific types of uh, of derivatives that the statute identifies as being the kinds of things that Congress meant to be able to control, but um, there are an awful lot of uh, other kinds of uh, transformations uh, that are either beyond uh, the reach of the derivative work right um, or uh, are uh, are things that shouldn't um, uh, that should be fair use. So, uh, an example for me of the. Uh, of, a, of a bad uh, derivative work right um, ruling uh, is the one involving uh, somebody made a, um, a Seinfeld aptitude test uh, that was a, kind of a game to play uh, which asked a set of questions about uh, episodes of uh, the Seinfeld uh, television program made it into a kind of game. This was mm. a this was a market that um, that was very far away from the markets that the copyright owners uh, had anticipated doing. Uh, there was a lot of creativity in the in the uh, in the game, and I just think it's not even close to being the kind of uh, thing that 
copyrights, derivative work rights should control. Uh, so I would basically say that's an example of something that probably should be lawful uh, because of the creative uses that were made in a completely different market uh, from the market that the copyright owner was exploiting. So, uh, Pam, we're at the point now, and we're chatting with Pam Samuelson of Berkeley Law on KZSUFM Stanford. Um, Pam, we're at the point of the show, because we have about 10 minutes left, where I, which I call the unfair portion of the show, where I start asking questions that you have less time to answer, and so the luxuries okay. begin to fade. Um, so I do want to spend some time, uh, particularly since many of my listeners are academics, like we are, um, and since you have spent a lot of time in the policymaking arena, um, there's a lot... There, I, there's increasing discussion, um, which I think is in part precipitated by the changes in the law academic market and in the practice of law, about how academics can meaningfully impact policymaking in the copyright space, but even broadly. And so, so how can, what is the influence, or what can, what are the practical limitations, as you see it, of academics not as theorists, not as as purely educators, but as activists and policy-making agents? So I think there are a couple of ways that academics can uh, engage meaningfully in policy-making. Um, uh, one way to do it is by uh, joining advisory boards of, uh, of nonprofit organizations that, uh, that hold similar kinds of uh, positions on issues. So um, uh, public knowledge, for example, and um, uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation um, are organizations that have advisory boards. Uh, academics are often members of those uh, boards, and you know when uh, those organizations are about to submit um, letters or um, other documents um, in response to uh, some policy initiative, um, having a chance to kind of put have input into that. Um, is something that that, uh, that academics can do. Um, one of the things that's uh, important about the current environment in copyright is that the Copyright Office is issuing a lot of notices of inquiry, um, essentially identifying set of questions that the office is contemplating some policy making about, and anybody who wants to uh, is free to address. Uh, the questions that uh, the office asks and to uh, submit those uh, comments uh, in response to those queries. So Authors Alliance, for example, uh, has uh, submitted recently um, comments uh, in response to the uh, orphan work and mass digitization notice of inquiry that the Copyright Office did. Um, uh, in addition to the Authors Alliance submission, I personally uh, wrote a much longer and more detailed um, uh, response to the questions that the office had asked and identified some issues that they didn't ask about that I think they should have. Um, and uh, you know, there are opportunities also to work with members of Congress in your in your district. Um, so uh, if you kind of find a way to get to know some of the staffers uh, for members of Congress, that's a way of, of potentially having some impact. But also you can write to uh, broader audiences. So op-ed pieces um, uh, and writing in uh, either newspapers or in uh, 
online venues such as Slate um, uh, is a it's a way to kind of reach broader audiences and to raise the profile of the issues that you care about. So, Pam, let me let me ask a, what what is going to sound like a harder or a harsher question, but I don't mean it that way. Um, to the extent that uh, more junior academics have some of those capabilities, clearly, you know, as as you point out, uh, one can submit uh, comments and proposals when those opportunities arise. And you know, you noted the ninety thousand uh, comments that came in. Of course, I'm sure most of that is noise. Uh, you know, people clicking, you know, a, a button that says "send a comment" and and goes in. But the point is, is that other of the other opportunities, like for example, being on boards takes time right so so uh, you know to put the question directly right you may you as pam samuelson clearly would have opportunities that that most academics wouldn't but let me take a step back from that and say with regard to and this is really an inside academic baseball question but i know there's lots of academics that listen to get to the point where one has the opportunity to be on the board of an organization that advocates within their field, where there are far more people who are interested in being on the board than actual positions. Do you recommend the traditional model that has existed for decades for academics of writing law review articles that are well-placed, in the case of law professors, that lead to recognition and so forth? Or do you advocate or do you encourage the more alternative ways that people build reputations from blogging to, I mean, the, the lesser extent, radio shows, although that's a, that's a much more niche area. Um, so what is the advice you give to, let's say, the uh, junior academic pre-tenure who is looking to the future and wants to have these opportunities, but also wants to be tenured and wants to be a good citizen within their school and so forth? What, what, what's your advice to that individual? So I think it's so important to do good scholarship first. Uh, but there's no reason why once you have done a, a serious scholarly work about a particular policy issue that you can't also tweet about it, uh, that you can't also uh, uh, write blogs that are, that are aimed at more broadly uh, sharing your insights with other people. Uh, and so I think social media provides a great opportunity now uh, for uh, young academics to uh, to try to build an audience uh, and uh, build a reputation uh, and therefore to have um, uh, the potential to have uh, impact. Um, the advisory boards that um, uh, that I'm a member of uh, doesn't tend to be uh, um, uh, like being on the board of directors of an organization. Very often uh, these organizations actually um, want to have more people to uh, ask advice to and or ask advice of and um, you know that sometimes provides opportunities also for um, amicus brief uh, work. So that's another way uh, for junior academics to uh, to have some impact is either write a brief on an issue that you think is going up to the courts that you have something to say about, um, or um, you know, join others in briefs, or write a brief and invite other people to join it. Um, so 
you know, the first brief I wrote was back in 1990-something, uh, and, you know, I've been writing briefs ever since. So let me ask one more question along those lines, which which is kind of a closing question. We have about three minutes left, um, but it, it covers two bases. Uh, you know, as you look at the agenda for the Authors Alliance and as you look more broadly as to where academics can have an impact, uh, perhaps you could flag for us not only a, a two or three big issues on the horizon for Authors Alliance, but also uh, maybe a few issues where, in your experience, you see that there is really a need for more scholarship and therefore the potential which it was in and of it in, it in its own right is a reason to do the work but also has the potential to impact policy so um, the authors alliance has been um, uh, weighing in as I said on the orphan works mass digitization issue um, and uh, it has also uh, weighed in recently on uh, reform of the anti-circumvention uh, uh, rulemaking, the triennial rulemaking. Um, the Copyright Office has uh, asked a set of questions about how they might be able to uh, reform that process. Uh, and so I think that that's, a, um, that's an area where some additional scholarship uh, would actually be valuable. I think both on the anti-circumvention uh, front and on the Orphan Works mass digitization front. Um, uh, I would say that, um, you know, in terms of things that are on um, legislative agenda. Um, I'm for the statutory uh, damage reform that the uh, the PTO uh, was recommending. Um, uh, but a lot of the things that I think need to happen um, are things that don't involve changes at the level of congressional legislation. So a big effort of Authors Alliance recently has been to uh, provide resources for authors who want to get their rights back. For a lot of authors whose books are no longer commercially active, um, it's possible to write your publisher and to, uh, to ask for the rights back and then to uh, either self-publish it or uh, make it available in a digital repository under a Creative Commons license. <clears throat> We've helped a number of authors uh, recently with rights reversions, and we have great resources. Uh, so that's something that's actually a kind of copyright reform type measure that individual authors can do something about. Um, Authors Alliance will also be working on a, a guide to publication contracts uh, for authors so that they can get smarter about not signing uh, uh, all of their rights away when publishers ask for it. Sometimes if you know what to push back for, um, you can get uh, a better deal. Uh, and uh, more and more authors are actually able to negotiate for making their work available under Creative Commons license as well as being um, uh, sold uh, through print publications or ebooks. So um, I think it's a great time for authors to feel empowered um, uh, to control their works, to uh, let other people know uh, what their objectives are and to carry out those objectives uh, for the public good. Pam Samuelson, a professor at Berkeley as well as, in, as Berkeley's iSchool, also of the Authors Alliance. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. You, Of course, your work has influenced my work as it's influenced many people in the field. Uh, but I appreciate tremendously you taking the time here to educate my listeners, not only about the Authors Alliance, but to really flag many issues that uh, not just academics, but generally we need to be thinking about in, in content creation and dispersion. Thank you much. 
Thank you. There's a number of guests coming up on Hearsay Culture's schedule, uh, which is uh, already well underway uh, through the uh, wonderful ability of uh, the Internet to allow connection. Um, I've been able to have a array of guests on the show over the last multiple years that uh, I'm truly proud of and grateful for. Uh, this show being aired on April 29th, uh, we have already, at this point, by the time the show airs, uh, have recorded the uh, live interview at Elon with uh, Larry Lessig. That interview will air next week, May 6th. Uh, following that, uh, Professor Michael Schutzen of Columbia School of Journalism, author of The Rise of the Right to Know, Politics and the Culture of Transparency. Uh, then, uh, four guests, uh, Francisca Muziani of the French National Center for Scientific Research and professors Derek Cogburn, Laura Denardis, and Annette Levinson of American University, co-editors of The Turn to Infrastructure and Internet Governance. Uh, then, uh, Professor Paul Ringel of High Point University, author of Commercializing Childhood, focusing on advertising to children as well as trademarks. Uh, Professor Neil Natano of UCLA Law, author of From Maimonides to Microsoft, The Jewish Law of Copyright Since the Birth of Print, and rounding out this quarter, Professor Missy Cummings of Duke University's Department of Mechanical Engineering and Materials Science and the Director of Duke's Humans and Autonomy Lab on Autonomous Automobiles. As always, you have a number of ways to listen to the show. You can email uh, me uh, at dave at hearsayculture.com uh, or go to the contact page for hearsayculture.com to uh, share information and suggestions with with regard to not only the slotting of the show, but as well as upcoming guests. You can listen to the show this quarter at 2 p.m. Pacific time on KZSU by going to kzsulive.stanford.edu or by podcast by going to hearsayculture.com to the iTunes page for the Center and Society or by going into uh, any of your uh, popular uh, podcast apps. If there's an app that you use where you have not found Hearsay Culture, please let me know. Uh, as always, I welcome those comments and suggestions and feedback. So thank you for listening to the show today. Please stay tuned to KZSU for more diverse programming and have a great day.